One of the staples of a gospel-changed person is this. They don't play scared anymore. They are so secure in the love and power and grace of Christ that they literally become fearless in taking risks that they believe He is calling them to. Scripture is littered with examples. There is Noah who risked building an ark in the middle of a desert. There is Abraham who risked uprooting himself from Ur and striking out for lands totally unknown. And then he risked his son's neck on the altar. Joseph risked displeasing Potiphar's wife. Moses risked making stuttered demands of the most powerful man in Egypt. Rahab risked housing the spies. Ruth risked a night at the foot of Boaz's bed. Daniel risked a night in the den of lions. Esther risked making herself known to the king. John risked standing right by Christ's cross. Nicodemus risked asking for Christ's body. We could give a thousand more examples. It is just what gospel alive people do. And not just in the big stuff. They risk extending forgiveness. They risk confessing their sins. They risk opening their homes and their refrigerators and their downstairs bathrooms. Gospel people don't play scared. For my dad, one big risk that he felt called to take was starting a Christian bookstore called Noah's Ark. And he hoped that that risk would become a light for Christ right in the middle of New York. The 1970s were a wild time. Psychedelic colors, bell-bottom jeans, funk music. And toward the end of this wild decade, my dad decided to do something pretty wild. This man, with no business training and no retail experience, was going to start a bookstore. So at that time, we were going to move on from opening a bookstore. There was a bad time, and we had a good friend of ours, Tony Lopez, who had a giant bookstore in Manhattan called the Christian Publications. And it was a friend of Margaret's, and we went in there and we said, Tony, we want to open a store on Staten Island. He said, that sounds like a great idea. There really isn't one there. So he gave us some little bit of quick education course, and he says, you need to come to a convention that I go to every year. All of the book writers are there. All of the singers are there. All the convention's there. Get your foot in the door. I'll help you out. And let's take it from there. So at that time, I was an electrician, and there was a big recession, sort of like there was now. And we were just, we, we had to do something different. So Margaret and I talked about money we had. Mom just happened to be a Puerto Rican woman, so she could get a low-interest SBA loan, and she applied for it, and we got it. I think it was around $35,000. So then it was time to find a place to, play, to have it. On Forest Avenue, it was kind of the middle of Staten Island, 
we found the place right away, and uh, we started to get help. My father, my brother, a few other people says, we're going to open a bookstore. We're ready to go. And we built stuff. We made a book. We made it uh, shelves that looked like an ark. And it was a small one in the beginning, and then it grew bigger and bigger and bigger. So at that time, we also had the uh, same type of problem you're having here in, in Boston. Gas. Everything's expensive. We had what you call, you probably don't know it, but we had gas by license plate. Odd Monday, even Tuesday. Odd Wednesday, even Thursday. Thursday. So that's how hard it was to get around. The economy was totally shaken up. So we got together. People from the church helped us pray. We found the place. We got the loan. We opened the business called Noah's Ark. We all know what a front is, right? Usually we think about it in negative terms, like Fergie's florist laundering money in the town. But sometimes a front can be a good thing. And that's what my dad's bookstore was. The selling of books and records and a million little Christian trinkets was cover for a ton of gospel ministry that happened through relationships built at the store. So Noah's Ark was new, fresh. It got uh, a lot of fanfare through churches in the area. And we opened the doors. We had a stock with stuff, records, jewelry. My mom was a big help in there. And and so as the days went by, we hired people. Barbara was one of our workers. So as days went by, we were finding out that we were more like a missionary stop-off. Everybody came in with a problem. The marriage was broken. They didn't like the church. They didn't like what the pastor was saying. And I was saying, well, we got books and stuff. Yeah, we want to, you know, we like to help you, but we also want to sell some stuff. <laughs> we got bills. So it almost became like this missionary um, help people with all kinds of different issues. Some of us, some of them took our advice. And at that same time, in Staten Island, there was a great Catholic charismatic movement in the 70s, which was in Protestants was Pentecostals. And they were all kinds of confused of what their church was preaching and what they were receiving. So we did a lot of ministering to them. And then I saw that not only was it just people asking questions, but a lot of people with broken marriages, uh, people with no jobs, and then a great people of substance abuse. So at that time I said, uh, somebody from... Our church gave me some money and said, you got a big wide open basement. Why don't we close up the walls, make some chairs, and uh, as you go through your day, if somebody make it known to them that there's a place that's safe and private and that they could talk and deal with their issues about their substance abuse, how to get over it, what are you doing to get better. So that started in on Tuesday nights and Thursday nights. And I'll tell you what, I got home at 2 o'clock in the morning, maybe longer. People cried, and they wept. And it wasn't just those on abuse. It was parents whose children had overdosed. It was 
other parents whose kids are on drugs? How do they help them? How do they get off of them? What could you do? And also, what helped all of that was my conversion in Vietnam. I did hashish. I did opium there. And my salvation was that God saved me and delivered me in a mighty way. So I didn't want to come down on those people right away. Just ask God and he'll give you the answers and everything will be fine. Some people, you got to really baby, hold their hands. So one of the girls used to come in all the time from Barbara. She was a little girl and she was 20. And she's here I am. She popped in and I said, Barbara, what's in your back pocket? Uh, oh, nothing. I said, oh, yes, it is. Put it out. So she always used to sneak in a bottle of rum. <laughs> and uh, we had to take it out. And then we also had to take out some needles. Uh, in those days, marijuana, you rolled it. You didn't go to down the street and buy it at the uh, the finest or something. <laughs> you rolled it. So I said, okay, all the guys with roll-up joints, let's get them over here too. We got them all in the pile. And we said, look at it. Is that what you want? Or do you want freedom? Do you want peace? So then one time outside the room there, I says, we're going to get everything, put it in this pot, and we're going to burn it. Just like a start of fire, you know, even though it was in the basement. And we did it, and everybody was clapping. And he says, oh, this is great. And uh, they really trusted me, and they trusted Margaret. They knew we were for them. We knew that we believed in them. Never condemnation. It was never rat tat 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 with the Bible, you know. My dad's bookstore was never a big moneymaker. No threat to Amazon. <laughs> It actually wasn't even a little moneymaker, but it did have a handful of loyal customers who kept the business afloat. One was a woman named Anne, who ended up buying more books than she could ever read or ever even intended to. Every day in the bookstore, we'd always have a similar amount of people. They just loved to come in and talk. And God sent us with this one lady, Anne Weber. She was all of five foot two. She had the same clothes on, and she had a little bit of gray hair, and I think she had a hat, I'm not too sure. And she attached herself to Margaret, some of our workers, and my mother. And she'd pull up a chair, and before you know it, she was there for six to eight hours every day. She lived around the corner. Obviously, she didn't have a, a family, and she was uh, of the Jewish religious and then she'd say, tell me about the books. And he said, well, I want that book. And I want that book. And I want to buy that Bible and trinkets. And every day she'd fill up bags full of stuff. <laughs> and like, couldn't wait for her to come in. Come on, where are you, Ann? And she was a, a pleasant lady. And I'm talking six years. I'm not talking about just a weekend purchaser. And we talked to her, and we did bring the gospel to her, and you know she just kind of stared at us. So one day she wasn't well, and someone says, you know, you need to go over and see Anne. She's a couple blocks away, and she asked for you. So I went over there and knocked on the door. I said, Anne, it's Glenn from the bookstore. She says, oh, come on in, Glenn. Sit down. And as I went in the house, I looked to the left and the right, and I saw these big bags. And in those days, 
we had Noah's Ark bags. It was a it was a it was an ark, and they had handles on them, and it looked like an ark full of animals. And uh, I looked over and I looked at Ann. I said, uh, "Boy, Ann, you bought a lot of stuff." She says, "Yeah. Someday I'll get to read them." <laughs> so she spent literally thousands of dollars, put it all over the house like a hoarder, and never even opened the page. Every bookstore has a cat. Here's the story of how Noah's Ark got its. Matthew was in school, first or second grade. James was still young yet, and he was in the bookstore with us all the time. And, you know, he said, Dad, Mom, can we get a cat? I want a cat. He said, mm, Mom's a little bit afraid of cats. We'll see what happens. And lo and behold, a couple of days later, this guy brings a box into the store. He says, I have something for you. We open it up, and there's a little gray cat. And when James saw that, he freaked out. He said, oh, no, a cat. Can we have a dad? Can we have a dad? I said, sure you can. We had to go out and get a party and get some food, and we named him Daniel. And Daniel became a fixture in our bookstore for seven years. People loved him. He'd sit in the window, and they'd, like, he'd scratch the window and wanted to wake up, and when they came in the bookstore, he was very loving, and people picked him up. And, of course, it was James's delight for his life every time that uh, he was in the bookstore. Every small business lives and dies on its revenue week to week. This is why the dogmatic governmental COVID lockdowns were so maddening for so many people. And it's also why my dad remembers clear as a bell the day... He almost, almost was robbed of an entire weekend's worth of cash. So every night we get a night deposit bag. We get the receipts for the day, checks, credit cards, cash. And usually I'd say the bookstore was running at that time between $250 and $350 a day. And at night I'd leave and I'd go right by Chase Manhattan Bank, which was just about four stores and across the street and they had this big thing you like a mailbox you open it up and your deposit goes in there and then when they get there during the day they credit your account so a lot of times on saturday nights i forgot and then i came back on when church, when the bookstore was open i had to deposit well this one monday morning for some strange reason the bank was very crowded I was about the 10th person online, and it was 9.30, and the bookstore had to be open at 10. I said, I'm never going to make this. Oh. So I left, went out the back door. Now, this, back, this bank had a front door and a back door. That's important in the story. So I waited. I went out. I got at the bookstore, opened up, and all of a sudden, there were, fire, there were police cars everywhere, sirens, coming from all directions, because we were right next to the bank. And I went outside, and I said, what happened? He says, the bank was robbed. I said, when? It's 9.30. I said, that's exactly when I was in the bank. And I left before the bank got robbed. Now, like I said, the front door, the back door, in those days, you could run in, rob a bank, and go out the back door and have your getaway car. 
Banks have changed that. You can't do that anymore. So that's not the whole story. Those guys were so mean, they robbed everybody in line. They took their money, their wallets, their purses, their watches, every single thing. And I said, hmm, I didn't feel too bad for those people in line, but I was happy it wasn't me. Running the bookstore was a family affair. My carpenter grandfather built all the shelving and display cases. My electrician uncle Perry wired everything up. My grandmother, Dorothy Cruz, who would talk to anybody for as long as they wanted. She would take three trains and two buses from Queens through Manhattan to Staten Island to help on weekdays. I think the trip even included a ferry. And my little brother and I spent Saturdays at the bookstore, fist fighting over the board game Payday in the basement, sneaking next door to an arcade to play Miss Pac-Man, and also taking field trips to hunt down missing deposit bags at the Staten Island dump. So one night, I could not find the deposit for the bank. And I got nervous. Sometimes I would be a little goofy. I would hide it in a, a record or put it in a drawer. But this time I couldn't find it. So somehow I thought it might have ended up in the trash. And this was Friday. So I said to myself, how and what should I do? And on Staten Island, of all the five boroughs, they had the largest dump, which wasn't too far from where we lived. One of the ways to prove it, it smelled terrible throughout the island. And it was growing larger and larger. All five boroughs bought stuff there, Bayonne and from New Jersey. And it got so large that uh, they didn't know what to do with it. But I'd been there once before. So I said, is it possible that that money might have ended up there? In fact, that it was in the uh, deposits thing. It was fireproof. So I got Matthew and Jake and James up really early. I says, we are going to the dumps. We are going to find this money. And, of course, they had a security, and I gave this guy this sob story. He says, well, you know, you're bringing kids out there. There's glass, there's knives, all kinds of stuff. He says, we'll be very careful. So we went out there, and we just looked all over the place. And then I said to myself, what am I thinking? This is like two miles long, two miles wide, and about two miles high. And you really shouldn't have any public there. So we went in there breaking things, jumping over bicycles, uh, needles, banana peels, trash, hubcaps, looked and looked and looked, but we did not find it. I probably was a couple of hundred bucks, but it was a tremendous experience <laughs> climbing through the, we might've been the only non-workers ever got into that place. Although some risks lead to big wins for the gospel in our lives, and some lead to loss or injury or failure, the truth is, is that no risk taken in obedience to God or in love for God and for His glory is ever ultimately a failure. My dad's bookstore was no exception to that rule. All right, the last days and weeks of the bookstore were very hard. 
Uh, we did a great job selling. I even went to church basements and people up homes and sold stuff, but it was too much of an effort. And at the same time, uh, our landlord raised the rent. Our phone bill was up. We had hired two more people. And in the book business, you paid freight. Nobody gave you free freight. So that was a good 10, 15% off our profits. So we really got over in debt in our head. And it was a sad time for us. And we didn't know what to do. We owed a lot of money. Uh, no one was chasing us down. They were giving us a good break. And then we sold, talked to our pastor. And the pastor says, at that time, Mom did not want to file for bankruptcy. She always had this honest streak in her, and she wanted to pay people we owed them because we owed them. So our pastor says, the best thing you can do if you want to meet all these bills, get a loan and mortgage for your house, pay all your creditors off. We had a couple of large small business association loans on low interest, and the time had come for us to, and also we were on the radio. We had a lot of once, twice a day, that we always had radio with special sales that we had to pay for. And uh, Margaret and I and all our workers came to agreement that after eight years, it was time to close this chapter. And uh, that expression of, say it ain't so, Joe, most of the people were so heartbroken. You know, is there anything we can do, you know? And... Uh, so that was our chapter in our life that was closed, but it turned into be a new beginning for someone else. So there it is, the rise and fall of Noah's Ark Bookstore, a very cool thing that my dad threw himself into. Little did my parents know that the ending of their bookstore would open the door for the beginning of a new life in Boston. Thanks for listening to this episode of Yeah, That's My Dad. If you are getting a kick out of these stories or being helped by them, we would love for you both to subscribe to the pod and also spread the word any way that you can. If you point someone to cruise.studio backslash dad, they can get connected not only to the podcast, but also to pictures that accord with every episode.